Hello, and welcome back to TPI's new podcast, To Think Minimum. I'm Chris McGurn, TPI's Director of Communications. Each week on this podcast, we facilitate a conversation between TPI fellows and eventually special guests on some of the most pressing and important issues in tech policy and tech politics. This week's episode features a very important conversation on the Universal Service Fund and rural broadband. What that means is a matter of some debate as to who pays, what it does, and how we get broadband out to the most rural parts of our country. And it's a topic that's very timely because just recently, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee has opposed dedicated funding for rural broadband, going against other rural representatives on thinking that there needs to be a dedicated federal funding service. Today's issue will focus on topics ranging from history of the Universal Fund to whose responsibility is it to pay and why we need broadband for all Americans anyway. Tonight we have with, with us Sarah O, oh, a TPI fellow, and Scott Walston, TPI senior fellow and president. And as it's a podcast, I should clarify that it's not just tonight, but you can listen today, tomorrow, in the morning, afternoon, or whenever you want. Yesterday. Yesterday, however you want to do it. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Sarah and Scott to give you some more insight on rural broadband and the Universal Service Fund and let you uh, be enlightened by them. Great, thanks Chris. I can start with a little bit of background on the Universal Service Fund and then maybe ask Scott some questions mm -hmm. um, that were raised when we were discussing it. So the Universal Service Fund was started in the 1996 Communications Act. That was a, a bit over 20 years ago. And since then, um, over $20 billion have been spent in four programs, starting with a high-cost fund for rural uh, broadband, now called Connect America Fund. There's a lifeline program that funds mobile phones and to low-income Americans. There's the E-rate fund for schools and libraries. And there's also rural health, which is a smaller portion of $8 billion um, spent per year through the Universal Service Fund. So there have been reform efforts along the way in the last 20 years and even recently. Um, in the news, there's also some talk of $500 million being distributed by um, Chairman Pai through the FCC to rural broadband. And we can talk a little bit more about where that money, extra money comes from. Um, but first, I'll ask Scott some background. Um, You've done a lot of work on the Universal Service Fund. What do you think are the most um, important issues related to that fund, and how should we think about it? Well, so first of all, um, we want to think about why we have a Universal Service Fund in the first place and what it's supposed to do and what it actually does do. And the, the, the idea behind it, universal service is that um, we believe that everybody should have access to some minimum level of services. And uh, this is sort of a, a common uh, goal around the world. Lots of countries have universal service programs. And there are generally three reasons people give, um, and really only two of which kind of hold up to inspection. And the first is, um, the first is uh, market failure. That uh, any given person doesn't take into account the full benefits of an additional person on the network, so they don't uh, they they don't subscribe uh, when society would want them to. The second is that we want everyone to have some minimum level of service, uh, and the third is that. Um, 
politicians like to give out uh, its distributional politics, right? Uh, now, the, the uh, externality argument doesn't really hold up because it might be external to the person, but it wouldn't be external to the network. Uh, so, but the other two that we, we want people to have some minimum level of service and that politicians like to give out money, both of those things uh, are, are, are definitely uh, at play. And so, like you said, we had an official universal, we, we first had an official universal service program as part of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. And that's because prior to that, we, we, service was mainly funded through a series of cross subsidies that became no longer possible once the, as the, as the uh, industry became more competitive. Now, another, an, an important point is that it's not just for rural service. Uh, most of the money in that, that we spend on universal service does go to that. Um, and but another part of it is helping low-income people uh, pay for service. And it, it it used to be originally it was the Lifeline program that's for low income. It had two parts uh, to help people connect and then to help people pay. And it was focused, of course, on just home phone service. Uh, and you could have one phone per household. And then eventually it was expanded to uh, mobile phones. And that caused some problems when there weren't very good controls and you, people had multiple phones, households had multiple phones, and there was, the, the, there was sort of limited checking on who was eligible. And then the FCC kind of got that under, under, under control. Uh, and now, most recently, the Lifeline now uh, can be used for broadband too. And people get uh, just about, about almost 10 bucks a month uh, that they can put towards broadband service if you qualify, and those are you know it's mostly income income based. So are all those services now available under the Lifeline Fund, or do you have to pick I want a phone or I want broadband, or can you kind of pick all the services if you're a low income person? You get you get ten dollars a month, uh, and you can use it, I think for you know a mobile phone service or for a broadband connection, but you can't use it. Uh, twice. You can't use it for two different services, except to the extent you could put it towards a mobile plan, um, and you can use that to dock, right? But I mean, if you're um, talking about low-income people, $10 a month doesn't really get you very far in this market. I mean, you know, I, you don't have to get the soup-to-nuts, you know, broadband, you know, package, but you still, I mean, I can't think of any available um, funds that, you know, services that are, you know, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month even, so... Well, actually, I mean, you're, I think you're, you're raising what is the fundamental question and which really should be part of the fundamental question for all of these things, which is what is the price elasticity of demand, um, especially for, in this case, low-income people? Uh, you know, how much of an effect will $10 a month have? And what what is the goal of Lifeline? Now, the goal of the Lifeline program is supposed to be uh, to help low-income people get online. And so then there's a lot of argument about what that really means. and. If it's, if it's specifically to get low-income people online, then that means that if you give a $10 subsidy to somebody who already has broadband, you haven't done anything. You haven't re you know, helped reach that goal. You may have made life easier for them, um, and because they're poor, it's hard to uh, you know, hold it against them, and an extra $10 a month is, is, means something for a, a, for a poor person or a low-income family. Uh, but Lifeline's not supposed to be a general welfare program. It's supposed to help people get online. So you want to find the people for whom that $10 a month uh, means the difference between having a phone or a phone or a broadband and not having it. And part of the problem with Lifeline 
um, is that we don't know the answer to that question. Uh, and the FCC itself has done a little bit of work on this. They did uh, some experiments in 2013, uh, 14 different experiments, pilot programs, to see how low-income people um, react, low-income people who had never had broadband reacted to all different kinds of um, prices and promotions and subsidies on equipment and digital literacy programs. Uh, and they did this in, uh, in connection with various uh, providers, and a lot of these were really well done studies with control groups and so on. And what they found was that they really couldn't get anybody to sign up. Um, they got each company, each program got about 10% of the subscriptions that they thought they would. They, even for a few dollars a month, they could not get people to sign up. Uh, and you know, because of that, that those that those programs were kind of buried. The, the reforms that made the Lifeline program ignore it. You can't find any reference to these, to these pilots in the Lifeline order. Um, but in fact, we did learn a lot from that. We learned that we don't know how to get this last group of people online. Um, and if, our, if society's goal really is to get them online, we will take that to heart. And rather than just, keep, just spend money because it makes us feel good to give poor people $10 a month, we will do more experiments and more study to figure out what makes a difference. Do we know what the population is, this, la this remaining population that's not online? Do we have any idea of how many millions or how many families or? Um, so the digital divide studies, there is a, a large literature. I don't know how conclusive it is um, because everyone's trying to figure out this last long tail of people. There's a lot of variation in the last 10% of people who aren't connected. Um, they're very different. Um, so it's not like one intervention will reach all of them. Um, well, and also, we, you know, there, there are different reasons people aren't online because some people aren't online, like this low-income group. They're mostly in... I mean, they're, they're low-income rural people, of course, but most of the low-income people who aren't online are in areas that have access. Mm -hmm. They just aren't connected. And then there's a group of people who, uh, who don't have access to wired connections, um, but they do have access to satellite at a minimum. And so we know that they don't connect because they, aren't, they don't like the type of service they get for the price available. Uh, and so these are hard things to sort out. And they're older people. Right. So there are a population of older Americans, like over 60 years old, who aren't connecting. And maybe that's about half of the people who aren't adopting um, Internet. Well, and then there's also the question of how much we care. Um, I mean, I think uh, if, if a person has, is, has, is well, you know, well off financially and um, they're happy not having Internet, they, they really don't care, uh, and let's say that they're you know, sufficiently informed, then there's not a problem. <laughs> right. I mean, consumer preferences. So that's the adoption question. Like, just because um, it's their deployment and access are available, um, the adoption question is, well, why aren't people signing up and paying for it? Even if you lower the price close to zero, people will still not find any interest or relevance. Some people. Some right. people, yeah. yeah. And, and there is also an open question of among, uh, you know, when you do, when uh, there have been these surveys over time, Pew has done a lot of them, and they ask why people uh, don't sign up. And of course, these are surveys. We, know we don't people. We don't know that people necessarily tell the truth or, um, or how much they care. But um, a, a top reason is almost always that they're not interested, or there's something. You know, there's nothing online that's useful to them. 
But that same that percentage has stayed the same while the number of people who are not connected keeps decreasing, right? So some of those people who said they're not interested became interested. Um, and uh, so is that because you know, con there's always more content? So in fact, they were consistent that at the time there wasn't and now there is, or did they learn? Um, because there's also some evidence that once people are online, they're more likely to stay online because they begin to learn what's, what's, uh, what's available. Um, so oh. grandparents getting on Facebook or parents getting on Facebook, they find that it's relevant to them and Could they be. find other uses. Well, and, and the example is people need to get online to find jobs and opportunities that's relevant to them, but maybe what gets people online is entertainment <laughs> um, or things that are, I don't know, less important, less important. Yeah, no, I mean, that's also an excellent yeah. point. I mean, as we've, we've decided that getting everyone online is important for society, but being able to renew your driver's license without going to the DMV is not what's going to, it's not what gets people online. Like you said, it's entertainment and staying in touch with friends and family. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that get people interested. Now, if you can build all those other civic services um, on top of that, that's great, mm -hmm. but you're not going to attract people by promoting those. So lead with yeah. cat videos is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah cat, exactly. cat videos. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I wanted to ask you, Chris, what do you think about subsidy programs? How much, um, how, how um, expert should governments be in offering smart subsidy programs? Should we just spend money and not really um, know where it's going, or is it important? I would imagine that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, mean, I, I think we do a really good job of spending money and we don't know where it goes. Anyway, um, I, I don't know. I think it raises a bunch of questions. If we're willing to pay, you know, 10 bucks for low-income people to get it, and there are obviously subsidies to the companies to expand out their services, you know, which one has more value and how do we actually get those that last, you know, uh, populate bit of the population online, and I'm not sure if you can, you know, force people to do something they really don't want to do. Um, in terms of rural broadband, that brings up another issue, which is, you know, is there services available, or why are we, you know, giving, you know, 500 million more dollars? Why is it that someone who represents a rural uh, district, who also happens to be the chairman of the subcommittee that deals with these issues, says we don't need to give more money to it. So that raises the question is, are they basically taking the field of dreams approach that if you build it, they will stream? Or are they just saying, um, you know, here's a great way to, you know, appeal to a large base of people that we want to appeal to, so we're going to give more money through these, these subsidies and whatnot. So, um, you know, it would be nice if the money got tracked, but living in the United States, you know that your tax dollars go to a lot of different places, and it's very hard to keep track of where that is. So. Well, you know, a, 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 a few things about that. One is, um, you know, th there's not evidence that, that the money that has been spent so far has actually gone to help build out rural areas. Um, most of the research seems to, sh you know, that does not find uh, much of an effect at all on the margin of, uh, of, of the subsidies. Uh, it goes to um, the overhead of the of these rural companies, it's been it's a huge boon for rural telephone companies. Unclear how much of the benefit has actually accrued to rural um, uh, rural citizens. Although service in rural areas is not as bad as we're led to believe, according to the National Broadband Map, ninety six percent of uh, rural America has decent speed. Uh, Broadband um, that still leaves you know five percent is still a large number of people. But, um, that, but just to cut in, 
That is more than had telephone usage from our conversation earlier. So if we're at 96% broadband and we only got to 95% telephone and we did the same thing, we're already doing better. Right? Well, but but that's uh, you know it's adoption versus availability. And so this 96, 95% was now broadband. That's about availability and the excluding satellite. Um, you know, adoption is going to be much lower. I mean, adoption across the country for home wired broadband is around 75, 78%, I think, and it's going to be. Uh, once you you know factor in the um, still lower, not hugely lower, but lower availability in uh, rural areas, it's going to be it's lower there than it is in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, it's not just not our regular tax dollars going to it, because we pay for this by taxing the services themselves. It's funded by um, so the, the way this tax rate is determined is every quarter. Uh, companies more or less say how much they will need, and the um, uh, Universal Service Administrative Corporation aggregates that, say this is how much money we'll need. They they sum up what they uh, the, the total amount of money, the base that they can tax of revenues, and then determine what that rate needs to be to get the amount of money they need. So it's not like there's a budget, and um, and they, they you know they, they try to minimize the budget or, or something like that. They sort of just determine what they need and then figure out how high the tax is. Uh, and um, so it changes every quarter, although the general trend has been up, up, up. Um, and so it, it's 19% of this of this base that's derived from um, long distance international calls and mobile phone service. Uh, I think most people are still amazed to realize that there is something called long distance service now. I'll write a blog post at some point with the numbers, but telecom um, industry revenues are, are going down um, each year just a little bit. So the contribution factor has to keep going up. Right, the um, contribution factor being the tax rate. The tax rate, right. So that's why it's around 19%, but earlier, years ago, it was around 8%. Um, and so it keeps inching upwards because the, the total amount of the Universal Service Fund is fixed, like Scott said, around $8 billion a year. So what sort of oversight goes into this process where they say, oh, we'll need this much money this year, and then we're going to tax at this rate? Do, is there any? Not really, um, because it's not it's not fixed. Uh, in theory, uh, there is a, there's a, a, a budget for the uh, for the rural for the Connect America Fund, which is what's a high cost program, um, and that's four and a half billion dollars. But in fact, that's not a budget. That's a that's not a cap. That's a floor. They can't collect less than that. They can distribute less than that, and so they collect that much and distribute less and build up this uh, these these slush funds. Um, but there's 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 no there's no limit. Uh, it can go. There really isn't a limit to how high it can go, except for how um, how much people will be are willing to be taxed um, before they you know before they protest. But um, there's uh, you know when when there's when there's talk of putting a budget uh, on parts of it, people who. Uh, Either believe in the in the program or benefit from the program, uh, and when I say people who benefit from the program, I mean companies that benefit from the programs object vociferously. Yeah, from my own work on E-rate, the E-rate program, which spends about half of the money, four billion dollars a year, um, every 
school district administrator has a consultant who helps them file forms with the FCC to get E-rate funding. So there's actually quite an ecosystem of people who are benefiting from this program. Maybe it's job creation, um, I don't know, but there are like thousands of forms that are filed um, to get money every year. And even on the school district side, there's this algorithm for how to determine income requirements for schools. But in one of my papers, um, I find that, well, because the rules depend on the income levels of students, certain school districts have been getting a lot of the universal service fund every year. So it accumulates. Like New York School District, uh, Department of Education has reaped like over a billion dollars of this fund. And LA Unified School District too, like over a billion dollars. So they're swimming in this fund because the, the rules um, help them because they're they're written to benefit low-income students but at the same time you wonder about saturation rates like how much money can you keep pouring in to building um, broadband to schools shouldn't these school districts have like shouldn't they be very wired by now <laughs> yeah um, and they're very they're very creative with this too I mean there has been some outright fraud um, for example a few years ago uh, somebody noted a yeshiva in New York that was taking um, funds every year despite not having any computers um, or using the internet at all uh, but you know that sort of outright fraud is, is 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 not the big issue that's less common but um, so for but you know another example is schools will um, school districts will figure out every way possible to spend this money, um, and Mon the Montgomery County schools, for example, use it to buy these Prometheus boards. Uh, these are kind of whiteboards that you draw on, and then it shows up on the screen, and you can poke it and do all kinds of fun things with it. Um, the Prometheus company is, presumably makes a fortune on this. Um, and when I've pointed this out before, I've had people react by saying, no, no, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do that with, with, um, with the E-rate e money. And that may be true, but... They did the school school district did spend money on it, and there's even a memo, a public memo, uh, describing um, their discussion of whether or not this was a legal use of those funds. They concluded it was obviously. Uh, Sarah, since you've written some papers on this, could you just give us a little background on what the E-rate program is and what it was intended to do, how it's actually working, aside from the uh, chicanery that that Scott told us about? Yeah, sure. Well. Each of these programs have a lot of rules attached. So even in the E-rate fund, there are different categories of funding. There's priority one and priority two funding. Um, half the money goes to paying telephone bills. So schools um, buy telephone service, and this money helps subsidize just telephone bill service. Um, and the other half can go towards equipment, like computers, Wi-Fi. Prometheus board. Prometheus board, maybe, if, yeah, if they count or not. <laughs> so there's a whole list of um, yeah, equipment that can be sold by vendors and paid for with the E-rate fund. Um, but funding is fungible. So if, if you're using E-rate money to pay your telephone bill, then there's other money to be spent on Prometheus boards. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one point. But yeah, you asked about E-rate funding. I wonder too, I mean, LA Unified School District also had um, an episode where they distributed iPads to all their students and that program failed because kids were taking the iPads home or stealing, you know, unlocking them and um, 
LA Times wrote some pieces about it. Um, it was a fail, um, not a good use of the money. And I think the iPads were um, subsidized by Apple. Um, but it also raises a bigger question of technology in the classroom and if it's really good for students to have Wi-Fi in high school and middle school streaming and chatting on their phones. Um, are they really learning? Does it help learning? And that question um, is very hard to measure in economics papers. Um, I've tried, people talk about tracking test scores, graduation rates, it's, and education um, economics is just challenging generally to well, see if kids are learning. But I mean, to the extent that there is research, it does not um, say good things about technology and education. Nobody's found yet that it really does make a, a positive difference. Um, although, you know, we're not, I mean, we're criticizing these programs and, and the waste in the, in the E-rate program, but it's not that, you know, I, well, I don't want to speak for everybody, but that we're actually necessarily opposed to spending public money on, on these things um, to the extent that technology is useful. Um, it's that the programs operate essentially without oversight uh, and without the ability to be evaluated. The Government Accountability Office notice, notes this again and again and again. And the FCC consistently refuses to do anything about it. It's simply not in anyone's interest who participates in the program to have a true evaluation. And that's the, really the problem. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that Congress needs to get involved with their oversight responsibilities, or is this something that the FCC should be doing if they wanted to? Well, again, I don't think it's even in Congress's interest because it's it's a way to get money to constituents. Um, and that's part of the problem. They're just It's not in anyone's interest to evaluate this stuff rigorously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, it takes graduate students to dig through the filings and, and come up with reform proposals for how to move the money around. Um, but we could do it. I mean, graduate students are cheap. Yeah. Um, so instead, you know, they, they'll pay companies millions of dollars to do fraudulent evalu valuations. <laughs> but, you know, you could pay a grad student $10,000 and it would be much better. Yeah, run a regression. <laughs> find a better way to distribute this money or put it out. Yeah, like I think about that sometimes, too. Like if you give $8 billion to like some smart entrepreneurs, like here, fix the problem. They can <laughs> they'll figure out a way, um, maybe. Um, but what happens, too, is like. There are these pockets of schools that are, are just um, wealthy enough to not get E-rate funding, but they do have poor students, but they're just not concentrated. And what's with, the cutoff for that? Um, so they, they use a discount rate, which is pretty much an income-based number, the percentage of students in a school who qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, and so depending on how many students in your school qualify, um, you get higher priority for funds. So a lot of schools in New York have 70% um, free and reduced lunch students, and so they get a lot more money. And so you can you can actually criticize, I guess, that criteria. Like, well, should we really be looking at concentrations of low-income students, or how about low-income students who are dispersed in rural areas? Although, I mean, to be fair, that's a problem that any program that focuses on you know, that's income-based is going to have. You've got to decide a cutoff somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I don't know uh, how much they, you know, they, they, they think about the cutoff and, and where it should be. But, but I think at least that's not, a, that's not unique to this income-based program. Yeah. Any subsidy program um, will have to deal with some criteria. Um, 
And even the Lifeline program, they don't use the SNAP um, cutoffs yet, but I think they've been recommended to. Hmm. So SNAP meaning food stamps. Right. Um, but Lifeline, they depend on the states at an, a state level to determine a list of verified low-income people, and which is an area of compliance like a lot of states don't keep close watch on who is on that list, and that's why you see companies like repeating names on their lists or sending like a lot of phones to one person um, because the monitoring isn't very um, good. Um, so how about we talk a little bit more about, um, I don't know, what would your ideal well, let's actually let's talk about um, not to interrupt. Sorry, okay. <laughs> but uh, you know ways how if, if we're gonna let's set aside Lifeline in schools for the for the moment, um, and uh, the the ways in which one should give away subsidies if you if you think that there are places that um, should be subsidized. Now, uh, let's again set aside the reasons why. Um, society would have a universal service program and think about why, instead, why a company wouldn't invest in a particular area, and those are the areas we focus on, and that's because they don't expect it to be profitable enough, right? And so you know, that's where the areas are that, in theory, you might want some uh, some subsidies if you believe, for any reason, that, uh, that that you want everyone to have this have this service. Right. Well, we talked about this a few months ago, but we dug through the high-cost fund a little bit to see where the money was going. And um, a, a lot of areas are kind of like Minnesota's 10,000 lakes. So those are areas where it's hard to build a line out to every home because of the topography of the land. Um, but there's no explicit cutoff in the USF of like vacation homes versus like residences. Um, I, I think there could probably be more of a strict criteria, like places where people are actually living or... Um, yeah, you're talking about a, a sort of, it's, it's a difficult normative problem though, where um, it's not just an economic question of where it may or may not be profitable, but where we, who we think deserves it too. Is that, is that, that, are you, is that where yes. you're going with this? <laughs> yes, right. So, right. So, and also we talked about it last week, like Lake Tahoe or Jackson Hole, Wyoming, like do just because an area is rural and maybe has a pocket of um, high wealth, um, does it mean we should be subsidizing lines out to those areas or maybe the neighborhoods around around those areas um, because they're rural? Um, well, I think, you know, arguably we should be, uh, if we're going to subsidize and it's, uh, we, we want to at least, you know, at least something that's um, more objective is uh, when, we're, when, you know, when you're not taking into account uh, the sort of equity issues, which you arguably should, uh, how to distribute them so you get the most bang for the buck. And that's not the way it's done now. The way it's done now is you ask for money, you get money, more or less. I'm, I'm being facetious. But, um, you know, instead, it should be treated as as a procurement process. And you, c you can give these out by reverse auctions. Uh, economists had been arguing to use reverse auctions, and we define those as a second for a long time. 
Um, rural interests fought very hard against them because they don't want to have to compete against each other for funds. Um, but other countries started doing it in the 19, you know, as far back as the in 1980s. Um, and so it could clearly be done. And now the FCC is doing reverse auctions. And so what that means is that you have to define particular areas that will get service. You have to define this kind of service that you, minimum level of service that you want. And then companies can bid and say, uh, you, you know, I need this much money in subsidies in order to provide the service that you want. And so, you know, another company will come in and say, I can do it for, you know, I can do it for a million dollars less than that person did. And so on, you bid the amount of subsidies down. That's why it's called a reverse auction, because you're bidding down instead of up. Um, and uh, the first one that the FCC did was a mobile, uh, a, a mobile fund, and the units, uh, the geographic units, were based on road miles uh, that were not, that did not have um, sufficient, think, I think at the time, 3G coverage. And what they found was that, you know, there weren't a lot of space, a lot, a lot of, there weren't many areas that got multiple bids, but what they were able to do was take the bids for all the areas and then line them up in order of cost effectiveness and start funding them that way. So you start funding the most cost effective and go down to the next most cost effective and keep going until you run out of your budget. And that way you know you've gotten the biggest bang for your buck. How is it that they don't do that already? What do they do then? <laughs> do they just go through alphabetically at grants? <laughs> well, or just drop drop money out of the sky, I think. Yeah, like that. that's right. They take a big 747, open up the bay doors. I guess 747s don't have bay doors, do they? Um, but uh, no, it's um, a lot of it's just legacy. Once you're in the program, you get money forever. And this is based, a lot of it was based on cost bottles. Uh, the companies would say, this is how much it costs to provide service. This is how much we can charge. This is how much money we need. But cost models are flawed. They can be gamed. Um, and you know the FCC uh, has moved, you know, advanced beyond that for some of the payments to, to um, price cap models and so on. But this just isn't the way it's been done. And so now there are doing more reverse auctions, but these are still just relatively small programs on the margin. You know, um, so there's going to be another uh, mobility fund auction. Then the Connect America Fund is having a reverse auction. Uh, they've recently released the rules on it, and in this case, they. The, uh, the way that they're defining the service is a little bit more complicated because you get a, rather than just submitting a bid, um, your bid gets scored and the score is based on the speed that you're going to provide and the latency that you're going to provide. Uh, and which is, you know, on the one hand, it's the right way to do it. And based on, you know, research that, that we've done, it looks like the, the sort of weights on the speeds are, are, not, are not, not bad, you know, given what people are actually willing to pay. But the latency penalty is, uh, is much higher than the research suggests it should be. It's clearly meant to, um, it's just satellite penalty um, more than anything else uh, and without much uh, basis in, in, or any basis as far as I can tell in, in research. But the point is they're, you know, they're on the right track by doing these reverse auctions, but it's still just a tiny percent of of the, the total that they're spending. Great. Well, we covered a lot of topics, and we've given the FCC and the government in general a lot of criticism. And aside from reverse auctions, it doesn't seem like there's much uh, other real firm or tangible solutions. A lot of that's political. A lot of that is the people getting money and, you know, part of this program like the status quo. So it seems like there's a big hurdle to reform it, but there are some proposals out there like these reverse auctions. If we were willing to uh to do so which we're not which we're not <laughs> in a big way great thank you six percent because some people just just wouldn't
Um, okay. They're just crazy. So why were we okay with telephone use being at 95%, but we feel like everyone needs to have broadband at 100%? Because uh, we're crazy. Good question, right? <laughs> that is a good question. Are we recording, or do I have to remember to ask that again? No, we're recording, but I probably have a better answer than what I just said. <laughs> um, Should we start? I guess that's a good... I can cut that in. Yeah, why don't we, sure. why don't we start? All right, now we've just got some time to come up with a better answer than that we're all crazy. Yeah. Even though we very well might all... I'm, I'm just... Um, I, I'm, I'm really curious what happened, like, especially in the early 90s. 